0: You're listening to Climate Charge, a Center for Development and Strategy podcast that explores the nexus of global development, sustainability, and security in an era of unprecedented change.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to the Climate Charge podcast. My name is Carly and I am here with my co-host Jeremiah and you are here with the Center for Development and Strategy. So before we kind of get things going, you know, with our, our guest today, I think it's important for our listeners to, to know a little bit about us, Jeremiah. And so why don't you start things off by telling us a little bit about your background, where you're coming from, and how you serve CDS?
0: Sure. Hi, everyone. My name is Jeremiah Perieg, and I'm the Director of Communications for CDS. I've been working in the environment and sustainability space for several years now. I have an undergraduate degree in political science and a master's degree in environment and sustainability, both from Western University. And I have a postgrad certificate from Stanford University in energy innovation and emerging technologies. I mainly work on energy and infrastructure projects, where I'm mainly responsible for working with elected officials and key stakeholders. And I also specialize in social impact assessments. And I'm excited to be here today and be part of this wonderful podcast. And Carly feel free to tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Yeah, thanks Jeremiah. So I am Carly Nicholson. I am the branding specialist with the Center for Development and Strategy, and I have a background in the earth and environmental sciences. So I have a bachelor's degree in earth space science from the University of Indianapolis. And while I was an undergrad, I did campaign work for a campaign with Harvard. Um, I also had independent research projects in atmospheric science, uh, launching weather balloons. And I went immediately into graduate school after that. And I have both a master's in public affairs and a master's of science and Environmental Science from Indiana University, and while I was at IU, I had the opportunity to wear a lot of different hats, and I interned with the Earth Day Network, the Indiana Department of Environmental Management, as well as the National Science Foundation, and I currently serve as a public sector advisory consultant in the metro DC area. Very excited to be here today. So back to the topic at hand, the podcast you are listening to here today, Climate charge. So, when we formed this podcast, we organized a call with our board members and other volunteers to discuss potential podcast topics and guests. And the overarching theme of suggestions were at this nexus of climate change and public health and security, which we considered to be this idea of environmental security. But, Jeremiah, why don't you tell us a little bit more about this idea of environmental security?
0: Sure. So security challenges and opportunities arise from changes to the environment, a local, regional, or a global scale. Environmental security goes a little bit beyond that. So according to the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense of Policy, Resource Competition, Environmental Security, and Stabilization, environmental security includes but is not limited to water, food, energy, climate, health, and ecological security, and the interconnections between all of these systems?
1: Yeah, so it's obviously a very overarching, large topic. So it's really cool that we're going to have this opportunity to not only, you know, touch on this idea of sustainability, but to really look at this from a a global perspective, which is something that I know that you're excited about, Jeremiah, and I know our board and our, our volunteer members have certainly been excited about. And so, you know, we're excited to bring this podcast to life as a new medium for communicating this idea of environmental security and why you should really care about this topic. So without further ado, let's get into uh, the pod and introduce our guest today. How, I, how about that, Jeremiah?
0: Yeah, sounds good.
1: Awesome. So with us today, we have Bethany Tejin. Bethany, we're really excited to have you here today.
2: Thank you. I'm excited to be here.
1: And a little bit of information about Bethany. So Bethany is a fellow with the climate policy lab and a PhD candidate in environmental policy in the Fletcher School at Tufts. Prior to beginning her PhD, she received an MA in law and diplomacy with focus in gender analysis and international environmental resource policy. Her master's thesis looked at the flows of climate finance towards adaptation in the agricultural sector. In her PhD program, she is building on her understanding of the links between climate change, migration, and food security. She is dedicated to designing policies that protect the environment while also advocating for the rights of those who live in it. And a fun fact about our guest, Bethany, she worked in Guatemala, Vietnam, and Thailand, teaching English to children ages three to 18. She speaks English and Spanish and also studied German. Bethany, we are really excited to have you on the pod today.
2: Thanks so much. Excited to be here.
1: So Bethany, our opening question for you is what environmental security threat do you see needing the greatest awareness?
2: So I definitely looked at this question um, from a more of a non-traditional security lens because part of what I study is human security and human security kind of takes the, the focus of security away from more of a state centric physical security lens and looking more at the individual lens. And one of the key tenets of human security is looking at freedom from fear and freedom from want. And so in thinking about this question, I thought about food security as what I think is one of the biggest security threats um, regarding environmental security. And so food security is very much threatened by climate change and that, is hap- that will happen and is happening in many countries around the world. And so that to me, I think is one of the, the key security threats in terms of climate change.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about where that's happening globally, if that's an American issue, if that's more of an issue that's seen abroad?
2: Yes, absolutely. So... There are a lot of projections about the way that climate change will impact food supply, and and I think a lot of global north countries will see some more favorable conditions for crops, so particularly countries further north, because of warming temperatures, they will have longer growing seasons, whereas many countries in the global south will experience more difficulty in growing crops, and we're seeing that already in some countries, particularly with regard to drought in countries like Ethiopia or Guatemala and that affecting farmers' ability to grow crops in the same way that they have for many years.
0: And that food insecurity, does that have any link to climate migration? Is that a contributing factor to it?
2: So that is one of the questions that I am planning on looking at for my doctoral work because there has been a lot of press around this discussion And in the past few years, there have been many news articles looking at migration from Central America to the United States and how that is impacted by climate change and in particular drought. And in terms of the academic evidence for that it's currently quite limited and and that's in part due to a lack of data available on these issues but also due to the difficulty of separating out the reasons for someone choosing to migrate. So rarely someone will move just because of one factor. It's often because of a a suite of factors that they move. And it is very difficult to determine what is climate change and what is perhaps in in Central America, they experience um, a weather pattern known as El Nino and so that has happened for a very long time, and that is not directly connected to climate change. And so it is difficult to separate out those those different causes of, of weather changes and, and different patterns. And so I think that there is a connection, and I think that the the information that a lot of uh, journalists have found and in interviews that they've had with people on the border have shown that they is a relationship between climate change and migration and we can see that in many parts of the world but it as of yet there's not that i'm aware of data that shows that there's a direct linkage between these droughts and this food insecurity and migration at least specifically from migration from these countries to the united states
1: So if we consider this idea of climate migrants, so you're seeking refuge, let's say, in the U.S. because of climate-related issues in your country, how are climate migrants recognized? Are they recognized in the United States or are there other reasons? Like how, how does that work in international law?
2: So currently there isn't a legal definition of climate migrants that is protected under international law. And the IOM has a working definition of climate migrants, and and they define them as a person or groups of persons who move predominantly for reasons of sudden or progressive change in the environment due to climate change. And this is a subset of environmental migration more broadly, which does not specify that the the migration is caused by climate change, but just environmental factors more broadly. But currently, there is not global protection for any of these people that is specific to their status as climate or environmental migrants. And some advocacy, I think, is being done and, and some policy changes are being done on the part of the Biden administration looking to how to incorporate greater protection for climate migrants under U.S. law. But researchers from the IOM, which is the International Organization for Migration, they have actually said that uh, establishing a a global protection for climate migrants or refugees would be a very arduous process that may not actually be as beneficial as, as some people think it might be. And they say that developing a more comprehensive protection for these people within current migration mechanisms is the better course of action.
0: So you mentioned that there's not an exact definition for what a climate migrant is. Let's say I live in California and I'm impacted by a fire that's caused by climate change or a hurricane in the southern United States. If I move somewhere more inland uh, to the central states, would that make me a climate migrant?
2: Yes, I would say so. I think based on The definition by the IOM, I think that anyone who is moving due to climate change could be considered a climate migrant. And I think often we have this picture of people in other countries moving to the US or to Europe because of climate change. But in reality, I think climate migration will happen in every country because every country will experience some form of effect due to climate change. And so I think yes, like US examples will definitely be present as well.
1: So to follow up on that, so what sorts of policies, you know, let's let's focus domestically should we be exploring to maybe start creating some of these defined systems for you know folks dealing Dealing with climate-related displacement.
2: One thing that we've looked at in our research at the Climate Policy Lab is expanding protection under the Temporary Protected Status system in the U.S. And so, looking at including climate and environmental impacts in the categories of, of what would allow people to qualify for a temporary protected status in the United States and because refugee status is reserved for a person unable or unwilling to return home due to a well-founded fear of persecution and this the refugee system is already quite fragile and overburdened and so expanding refugee status specifically has has been said to not necessarily be the best course of action but temporary protected status in the U.S. could be a good avenue for that. And also one of the things that we have called for is looking more at just developing and gathering more data on this topic so that we can understand how it is actually happening from a more nuanced perspective that captures the multi-causality of a migration process and how climate change plays into that. And so then we could design policies that are actually much more tailored to those complex migration pathways that people are taking.
0: And in terms of climate migration, is that something we're seeing more as uh, the years are progressing now?
2: I think so, yes. And it's actually interesting. I've been taking a a course in my graduate studies on uh, classics of international relations and reading some ancient Greek texts, and I actually have been noticing within these texts talking about like environmental impacts and people moving out of their villages because say a volcano erupted or because they're they were no longer able to grow crops in the area that they were living so it's definitely not a new phenomenon in terms of environmental migration but climate migration specifically due to the impacts of climate change I think is absolutely increasing because as the years go on we're Experiencing higher global temperatures, and there are more climate effects manifesting both from sudden onset climate hazards, such as tropical storms and hurricanes, and things that more immediately can displace people, as well as slower onset events like desertification and ocean acidification. And those different factors impact people's decisions to move in different ways. But I I would say, yes, progressive progressively we're seeing more and more.
1: So potentially to pivot here a little bit. So we've talked about this idea of climate migration, because, you know, you're in a place where maybe you need to move to be in a safer place. There's coastal erosion, whatever is kind of going on in your, in your space. But there's also this idea that we can both mitigate our risk and we can adapt based on policies and funds that are available. So I know that your master's thesis talked a lot about climate finance. So could you kind of define some of these large issues in climate finance or what it even is?
2: My research on climate finance looked at how climate finance was failing to go toward the people that were most vulnerable to climate change. And climate finance, I think, can probably broadly be defined as funding that is going towards mitigating and adapting to climate change. And a big foundation of the climate finance sphere is thinking about common but differentiated responsibilities and so thinking about who the historical emitters are in the world and who are the countries that are experiencing the biggest effects of climate change and for the most part the countries that have contributed the least to climate change such as small island developing states and least developed countries are the ones that are experiencing the the biggest effects of climate change so Climate finance tries to mitigate that by ensuring that the countries, the developed countries of the world, provide the majority of finance towards mitigating and adapting to climate change. And one of the issues that I looked at was the fact that while a lot of climate finance institutions pledge to provide a balance of mitigation and adaptation funding. Most of the climate finance that we see today is going towards mitigation, which makes sense because it it's logical that people want to fund the, the prevention of further climate change, but also adaptation is how people are responding to the climate effects that are already happening. And so this Shortage of adaptation funding is a very important issue in climate finance, in my opinion.
1: And really, it sounds like it probably most impacts those, you know, developing countries or those those impoverished countries. Like I remember, you know, reading through your your thesis and seeing that Ethiopia was a case study, and they're you know doing their best to to mitigate their impact on emissions, but their emissions level is what it was like 0.003 percent of the overall emissions, which was just incredible to me.
2: Yeah, definitely. So Ethiopia is a really interesting case study because it is a country that has really prioritized climate action. Ethiopia has its own national climate resilient green economy strategy, and they have really tried to integrate climate action into their planning within the government. But Even with that commitment that the government has made, it is still very difficult to fund the adaptation and mitigation projects needed in Ethiopia. And so it, for me, was a key example in my thesis of of what is lacking in climate finance. So a country that heavily depends on agriculture where much of its population works in the agriculture sector, And this sector is extremely vulnerable to climate change and is already experiencing a lot of environmental threats. And and these people in the agriculture sector have very few avenues to access climate funding through organizations like the Green Climate Fund or others.
1: So yeah, you mentioned the Green Climate Fund. So who exactly are putting forth the dollars for this program and could you tell us a little bit more about what that the green climate fund is
2: my thesis focused a lot on the the GCF and the GCF funds a huge range of mitigation adaptation. And it is funded both through public and private finance. And my research looks specifically at public finance. And relating back to the issue of common but differentiated responsibility, developed countries pledged $100 billion per year to the Green Climate Fund by 2020. And this pledge was made, I believe, during the the Paris Agreement. And this pledge has not been met. So, this is one of the key issues I think that is faced in climate finance is actually getting countries to follow through with their commitments because there are a lot of commitments made in these large climate conferences, and it is very challenging to follow up on that. And so, while the GCF has mobilized a significant amount of funding, it has not gotten close to that $100 billion per year and so the scale of the projects that they they want to carry
0: out i think is limited by that. Is there any type of recourse for countries not following through with their pledges?
2: Not that i saw in my research because 2020 was in the future it seemed like this feasible target and and now 2020 is past and and still the mobilization of those funds hasn't occurred. And I I think that has been a challenge
0: faced by the GCF is
2: developing some sort of accountability
0: for countries to uphold their pledges. Uh, In a situation where it might be funded down the line, what kind of projects would it apply to?
2: So they fund a huge range of projects. Um, One of the interesting ones That I had looked at in my thesis was a project that looked at gender and climate adaptation and this project was actually the first project to be rejected by the GCF but it eventually went through some some edits and I think was eventually accepted. The GCF does fund a huge range of projects I think from very mitigations emissions focused projects in many parts of the world to adaptation and resilience building in in countries that are experiencing severe effects of climate change and and some of their projects are are very interesting to read about and and to read about the scale of some of the work that they're doing so it's definitely worth checking out their website you can read a lot about their projects all around the world
0: you mentioned gender as well. I just wondering if you'd be able to pivot to that for a second. Uh, in your intro, we were discussing some of your uh, research and work in the gender-based analysis field as well. Can you speak a little bit about that?
2: Absolutely. So Fletcher has a very strong gender analysis program, and I was always very interested in thinking about the ways that gender played into both food insecurity as well as migration. And so through my research as a master's student, I was able to look at all three of those topics. And it was very interesting to think about migration from a gendered lens. And part of the research that I did and that I read about was about how any decision to migrate is gendered. And so people's age and gender, their race and economic status all influence their ability to migrate. And this also plays into people's decisions to migrate in the face of climate change. So both the socially conditioned responsibilities faced by men and women play into the decision within a family of who is going to migrate. Often it is men who migrate first and they provide for their families in terms of in times of economic hardship. And then women often are at home with the families and and face specific challenges if their partners are in another city working and sending money home to the family. And so just these different ways that people are experiencing either staying in their place of origin or moving to support their families, those are all very gendered experiences. And then food security specifically is also interesting to think about the the gendered implications. Food production in the agriculture sector is generally considered a male-dominated sector, so this indicates that men have more control over food availability, whereas women often dominate the other components of food security, which are access, utilization, and stability over time. So women's time spent ensuring food security for their families, as well as managing other household tasks, is significant and unpaid labor. And so often in times of food shortages, women often must spend more time trying to provide food for the family and often reduce their own food intake in order to feed the rest of the family. And so just some, some of those elements were things that I had never really thought about in terms of the different ways that people are experiencing both food insecurity and migration. So I do hope to keep that gendered lens in my, my thesis going forward and, and just incorporating those different experiences that people are having, both as migrants, as well as people who are experiencing food insecurity.
0: Bit of a follow up question to that. So in Canada, we have something called Gender Based Analysis Plus, and it's a tool that's used mostly on government projects to sort of assess the different experiences of men, women, and non-binary people, and how their relationships to policies, programs, and initiatives sort of exist. Uh, That's the GBA component of it. And the plus component sort of considers the intersectionality of the other identity factors. So uh, race, ethnicity, religion, age, education, sexual orientation, culture, income, language, and level of ability. Would a type of model like that or a tool like that be useful in the type of work and the research you've been doing?
2: I definitely think so. I think that something like that that encourages increased awareness and understanding of the gendered experiences of migrants or people in general would be very useful in helping design more effective policies. So rather than something being completely gender blind and implementing a policy that doesn't take into account these different experiences, if more people had this kind of training on gender-based analysis, then I think that policies would be much more effective at addressing the different vulnerabilities that people face within these intersecting identities. And so I think that a, a tool like that could be very, very useful.
1: Domestically, we have the American Jobs Plan, which, you know, at face value, we, we look at as, as an infrastructure bill. And it's not completely an infrastructure bill. It actually has these four distinct buckets. So there's buildings, schools, and aged care. Um, There's transportation, utilities are included. And then there's this this bucket of jobs and manufacturing and innovation, which distinctly points out dollars for climate-specific R&D and tying back into racial and gender inequities. In your opinion, do you think that this plan will address and combat climate change? What do you think the the pros of this plan or even cons of this plan are?
2: So I've read a lot about the strengths of this plan and I think that there are many and they the scale of this plan Within the US, I think is very unprecedented. So it's a very promising step forward. My advisor, Kelly Sims Gallagher, she's an expert on US climate policy, particularly the US's relationship with China and Chinese climate policy. And she's talked about the issues and the need for a green bank at the at the national level, and how one thing that this jobs plan does is talk about the the need for a US green bank and She says, there is a need for this bank to direct funding to underserved communities and looking at advanced technologies and working to unlock a bigger volume of climate finance from the private sector. And she critiqued that this bank could be bigger. So they are pledging 27 billion dollars to the bank, which doesn't come close to the size of the Chinese Development Bank or Germany's. So that's something that they could improve on. And beyond that, I think I was just I was impressed by the scale of the plan and particularly the level of funding for research and development for climate solutions. So I I think that's very promising that the the level of investment that they're
0: planning into R&D. Do you think that the Biden administration has improved on the Trump administration in terms of the American Jobs Plan and particularly its relationship to climate change?
2: Absolutely. I would say that it's been a huge improvement, just even in the rhetoric around climate change. And it clearly is a huge priority for the Biden administration. And you can see that in the appointments that they've made for people working on climate change. And the real tangible expertise that so many of these people are bringing into the White House, and I think that hopefully this helps reestablish the U.S. as a key player in global climate policy and meeting our commitment that we are indebted to have because of our, our historic emissions and, and the role that we've played in causing the climate crisis.
1: I totally agree with that, and thinking about you know, the individuals that have been appointed, you know, Janet McCabe is now the deputy director of the EPA. I, you know, she was, she taught at my grad school and, you know, there's, there's things like that. We've got Pete Edge over in, uh, in transportation. And it's certainly, he's doing a lot, not only as you know, in terms of climate change, but he's giving the Biden administration a kind of a fresh face because if we, you know, think about the rhetoric surrounding climate change, um, you know, in a lot of ways, it's, it's pretty siloed if we think about it. Um, you know, if your, your friends are big believers in climate change and that's the information you're taking in, but if your family is very, you know, anti-science, anti-climate change, then you end up in these, in these silos. Um, So I think he's, you know, giving that fresh face to this this topic, um, which is actually something that I want to ask you about. Uh, Bethany. So when we think about these, these silos of thinking with regards to, to climate change and global, global climate change, you know, what can be done to reason with, you know, folks that are in these silos of anti-science, how can we inform them to educate them to to maybe make them more aware of this, you know, fact, you know, global climate change is a fact, it's not this ambiguous idea anymore, like we have hard science, we have hard data um, on this topic.
0: And so I just wanted to build on that a little bit as well. Uh, so Uh, My master's is in environment and sustainability, and I know people who I went to grad school with who are now climate change deniers. We haven't even been out of grad school for 10 years at this point, and something in their opinion has shifted in the last year to three years in regards to their views on climate change, how real it is, and everything you can imagine. So yeah, I just wanted to touch on that as well and get your thoughts on not only how can we educate people, but how can we also communicate with those who are educated but maybe have been led astray by false information?
2: Yeah, I think both of these issues are so important. And it's been interesting for me as a student of climate policy, as well as I worked as a teaching assistant on a class that looked at how the U.S.'s role in environmental negotiations has shifted and also how the U.S plays this huge role in environmental misinformation and how that was an intentional campaign by people in the, the 1970s and 80s and how that misinformation has still continued to this day. And, and that has remained very entrenched. And I think it's super interesting, Jeremiah, that even people that you went to school with are now sort of backtracking on what they learned and, and what the science clearly shows. I was writing a paper today and I was looking just for some facts and figures on climate change and NASA has a climate change website and they're, they really lay out the information in a very clear way that there's 95% certainty that X amount of warming is due to human causes. And so with that information, it's it's very difficult for me to imagine people not necessarily understanding that. I think for me, part of what drove me to study the environment myself was interacting with young people as a teacher. And I heard this quote that was, if we don't teach our children to care about the environment, then they will never learn to protect it. So I just really wanted to instill that in my students and I felt like that was just something so important, people's connection to nature, which is often not accessible to many people at different socioeconomic levels, different locations where people live in that don't have access to parks or to wilderness. And so being able to allow people of all walks of life to access nature and to understand the importance of
0: it, I think that is a key step in moving forward and
2: increasing people's climate literacy and
0: environmental awareness. So yeah, sort of wrap things up here. I was just curious, do you have any advice for someone interested in climate change policy?
2: Yes, so I think that it is an extremely important field and a really exciting field to be in right now, and so I would say for anyone interested in studying it, go for it. There's so much richness and complexity that you can look at within that field, and it's really interesting because My degree sort of falls between international relations and political science with some anthropology thrown in there. So there are so many different ways to approach this topic. And talking to both of you here on this podcast, you each have your own background in environmental science or sustainability. And and so I think that for anyone thinking about studying climate change policy, Just think about what aspect of it interests you most. We need more experts on this topic and you can study adaptation, you can study mitigation, you can study environmental justice. I think that there are so many approaches to this topic that are are very important to look at.
1: What other sorts of resources might you point someone to who is interested in learning more about climate change, climate policy, you know, any books, suggested websites, you know, what, how would you keep abreast of the topic?
2: So I think for me, because I really love looking at this topic from the individual and sort of micro-human level scales. My favorite book on this topic is called Slow Violence and the Environmentalism of the Poor, which is by Rob Nixon. And it's a it's just a very excellent account of how climate change impacts people in poor communities around the world, and also how these people are responding in, in their own ways. And then the other book that I recommend, which is a favorite of mine, is is The Overstory by Richard Powers. And it's just a beautiful story about people's relationships to trees. And I, I think that it's a great way for people to kind of connect on a very human level with the environment. And then my third recommendation, which is more migration-specific, is Exit West, which is also a novel, and it's by Mohsin Hamid. And it's a novel about two people who are displaced, and it's just a beautiful story that very much humanizes migration and the experiences that people go through while migrating.
1: It sounds like Jeremiah and I have some, uh, some reading to do after this podcast. <laughs> so Bethany, as we wrap things up here, how can folks get in touch with you? If they want to ask questions, they want to, you know, take a look at your, your thesis. How can folks get in touch with you?
2: Feel free to connect with me on Twitter at Bethany underscore Tjin as well as LinkedIn. Those are the best places to reach me.
1: Fabulous. Well, Bethany, thank you again. Can't tell you how great, can't even tell you how great this conversation has been. Thank you so much from the Center for Development and Strategy community.
0: We really appreciate all of your time. and It was a great conversation and we all have a lot of reading and learning to do, I'm sure. And I, speaking for myself, I definitely appreciate it. I know Carly would agree with me as well.
2: Thank you both so much. It's been so great to talk to both of you and hear your perspectives on these issues as well.